Hello and welcome to a special episode of Spectator Radio. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's economics editor, and your host for the next half hour. Everybody knows somebody who has asthma. You yourself might even have it. 5.4 million people in the UK are currently receiving treatment, and 200,000 have severe asthma, a form of the condition that doesn't typically respond well to medication. For many, asthma is a severe and debilitating condition, but there exists a real disconnect between its severity and the organization of resources to treat it. When it comes to treating illness, remission is rarely black and white, but for asthma, it's commonly steroids. 130,000 people are currently reliant on steroids to manage their asthma, but is it ethical to use them in the treatment of asthma? And what, if anything, is the alternative? Steroids have become the frenemy of both patients and the healthcare system. On the one hand, they're cheap to administer and largely effective, but on the other, the side effects they produce can be very difficult for patients, and costly too. Joining me to discuss all of this is David Price, Professor of Primary Respiratory Medicine at the University of Aberdeen, and he's currently leading the first International Severe Asthma Registry. I'm also joined by AstraZeneca Saeed Ali, and this podcast is kindly sponsored by AstraZeneca. And please note, The patient's individual experience of severe asthma and discussion in this podcast are not medical advice. If you have questions about your own health, please discuss with your healthcare professional. David, I'll start with you. Could you give us a little background on what asthma is? I mean, asthma is not one disease as such. It is actually a whole combination of different types of asthma as we might now regard it. And there's been a lot of discussion about uh, people understanding what is my asthma, what is my type of asthma. But it tends to present in a number of similar ways where people get inflammation in the linings of their lungs, which then can be worsened or trigger into spasms within their lungs, which gives people symptoms when they do activities or get exposed to things, and can also be very severe sometimes in response to some of those triggers which requires background therapy to generally take away that inflammation or control that inflammation, and treatments that also stop some of that triggering off of the flare-ups in the lungs. And how is it currently treated in the UK? So our recommendations for treatment are based on the severity of the disease, but almost invariably suggest that people require some background anti-inflammatory treatment, which is classically given as inhaled corticosteroids. And low-dose inhaled corticosteroids we know to be very safe and very effective for many of our patients. They may be given on their own for some of our milder patients, or they may be given in conjunction with what we call long-acting bronchodilators, which are drugs that keep the airways open and less likely to trigger off. So you may have a combination inhaler that contains an inhaled steroid and a long-acting bronchodilator drug like a long-acting beta agonist like a long-acting blue inhaler we see many people using. And then for a small proportion of patients, that's not adequate therapy. And they may either require additional inhaler therapy, sometimes now given as three inhalers in one, or additional oral therapy, tablets. And if that's not adequate, we can increase the background dose of that inhaled steroid, sometimes improving the benefit. And for those people we can't control with that type of regime, particularly those getting flare-ups from time to time, which we often have to give steroid tablets for. We then look at alternative strategies, particularly around the novel and very useful addition of our new biologic therapies, which tackle very, very specific pathways for our more severe asthma patients. 
Saeed, David mentioned oral corticosteroids, or OCS. How do these drugs work? Thank you for the question, Kate. As kind of David's already highlighted, oral corticosteroids actually do help in the reduction of the inflammation and also calm the immune system down, essentially stopping the body from attacking itself. It does definitely have a place in asthma therapy, but also what we do need to bear in mind with oral corticosteroid therapy or OCS therapy that with long continuous usage of it, there are, is the potential of adverse events associated with it, not only physical, but mental as well. So for example, in terms of the physical adverse events associated with it, you may get diabetes, cataracts, um, and also from a mental health point of view, it is associated with depression at times. So although these are do have a place in therapy when inappropriately prescribed, it may be a potential for patients having adverse events in the future. And it'd be great to get David's view on that, particularly with his clinical experience. David, those don't sound like light side effects. They sound quite serious. Potentially very serious. I think what's very important, as we've just heard, is that these drugs can be absolutely life-saving when people are acutely ill. So it's not that people shouldn't use oral corticosteroids when they have a bad flare-up. There's no question they, they should be used. But what we need to do is stop and think after each use and say, how can we avoid future courses? And in particular, also anyone who requires long-term steroids, we need to think very, very hard about reducing those. Our own data, we've analysed a number of very large data sets from the UK. One of the great things about the UK is we have access to these data sets. We did a combined analysis looking at one of our databases, the Optimum Patient Care Research Database, combined with another, the, the Clinical Practice Research Database, So together, about 25 million patients, over a third of the UK population. And we were able to see from that that once people start to hit about four courses of steroids in a seven-year period, so not very big exposure at all, you start to see an increased risk of osteoporosis and diabetes. So really, really important that we think very hard about how to avoid their use. Obviously, as I've said at the very beginning, if they're needed in an emergency, they have to be given because they are life-saving. However, it must always lead to us stopping and thinking about other strategies to avoid that in the future. Well, let's hear now from a patient who suffers from severe asthma. Gabby is a 23-year-old student whose experience is included in AstraZeneca's report on OCS as a case study. I started by asking her about her experience with asthma and when she was diagnosed. I was diagnosed when I was two years old, but I had quite an unusual process of getting my diagnosis, if that makes sense. So getting my diagnosis was no problem. Like I say, I was diagnosed when I was two years old. It was fairly straightforward that I had asthma. It was relatively well controlled. By the time I was seven, I had a really bad asthma attack out of the blue whilst I was swimming with school. And from there, I got progressively worse. And by the time I was 10, I was pretty much uncontrolled. And that's when I started needing more help from more doctors until I'm at the point now where I'm 22. I've had asthma for 20 years, but it keeps progressing, if that makes sense. So it's still getting worse? I wouldn't say that it's still getting worse. It's still very aggressive. But by introducing more and more treatments, we try and keep it under control. As I understand it, there are fewer available drugs for children. That must have made it very difficult when you were starting to get severe attacks at such a young age. Yes, it was. When I was 13, I was put on an immunosuppressive drug 
to try and combat my asthma. And I know I was the first child they had react badly to it at the hospital. And it was so heartbreaking because it worked so well for eight months and I pretty much had a normal life until it stopped working. And after that, we got to the point where there weren't any more drugs within paediatric care that I could have. So I wound up moving to adult care early at 15 to start receiving different treatments that weren't necessarily available to children, if that makes sense. And in terms of your medication now, what are the types that you receive? Because there are inhalers, steroids, and also these things called biologics. How does it all work? I'm on quite a combination of medication. I take around 12, 13 different medications every day. That's a mixture of inhalers, steroids, antihistamines, and some other medications mixed in there as well. But I also receive biologics every eight weeks at my hospital to try and work with the xenophilic asthma because that's one of the types of asthma that I have. There's side effects with all medications, but the side effects that I personally experience with steroids are quite severe. They make me put on an awful lot of weight. They make my mood terrible. They affect my mental health. They're not a brilliant drug for me personally to be on. But they do work, so that's why we continue using them. But by using biologics, I've been able to reduce the amount of steroids I need over the last few years, which, yes, I've traded in one lot of side effects for another lot of side effects, but the side effects I receive from my biologics are much more manageable and they make it so that I can manage my condition a lot better. Gabby, the use of steroids for severe asthma patients has been described by some as a frenemy. Would you relate to that description? Oh, definitely. Steroids definitely have a place in treatment for severe asthma or just mainstream asthma if somebody has a flare-up. I know from my personal experience and speaking to others that they're not the drug that everybody wants to take. They're the drug we love to hate. They're fantastic because they work so well. But at the same time, the price you pay for taking them is incredibly high. As I mentioned, the side effects, for one thing, are horrific. So, yeah, I'd say they're definitely a frenemy. They're friends because they work brilliantly, but at the same time, they affect you in so many ways. So it's lesser of two evils trying to balance out the use of steroids and making sure that that treatment is the right treatment for the person at the time when they need it. I think sometimes they're very easy to just reach for because we know they work. But trying to work out when you really need steroids or maybe when you need a different course of treatment, maybe if you've got an infection brewing or something like that and you need some antibiotics instead, trying to work out what treatment you need to treat the specific symptoms you're feeling at that moment in time can be quite difficult. And unfortunately, steroids are the thing we tend to gravitate towards because nine times out of ten, they're going to work. Well, that's an important nod to personal care. Mm-hmm, definitely. Tell us, what is life like with the severe asthma that you experience now? It's not your everyday life. It depends on who the person is. For me personally, I'm classed as having severe asthma. So my day starts getting up, doing a nebulizer treatment to help clear my lungs. I then do some physio, which can take up to an hour or so. Then I take all of my medications. 
And like I said, that can be up to 12 medications a day and I take them four times throughout the day. By that point, I've already been up an hour and a half, two hours, and I haven't even got started with my day. So obviously then I take more medication, more medication, getting ready for bed as well. It's more physio, more nebulised treatments, more medication, then going to bed. And by the end of the day, you're absolutely exhausted because people don't tend to realise how much effort breathing takes until you can't do it. So it's an unusual life, but I tend to try and fit my treatment, my regime around my life and not the other way around, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, it it sounds terribly difficult, yet there's such an optimism about you. Tell us about (laughs) what the future holds in terms of your career and your plans and how you're going to balance that with your condition. Well, I've just finished my undergraduate degree at university. Congratulations. Psychology, criminology and criminal justice. And I've just put in an application for a clinical psychology master's degree. So fingers crossed I'll get in. And it has affected my choices of career. Originally, when I was younger, I I wanted to be a doctor or I wanted to do a very physical job. At one point, I wanted to be a professional dancer. I think every child has a dream like that at some point. But because of my health, I had to get a more realistic look at what life was going to be like. And I had to give up that dream of being a professional dancer or doing something like that because I quite simply couldn't keep up the stamina. Every time I'd have an asthma attack, it would take me longer and longer and longer to build up the stamina again to be able to compete and then I couldn't compete and it got progressively worse so it has forced me to have a more realistic outlook in life so doing a physical job like being a doctor walking around a hospital all day being around a lot of people with a lot of germs (laughs) isn't something that I would be able to do so I had to change my ideas towards my career hence why I went into psychology and it was definitely the right decision I love it (laughs) Um, I think I just have to take it each day at a time there are some days where I'm really not very well and I can't do very much and I'm pretty much restricted to my house or my wheelchair which I use occasionally but there are some days where I'm feeling relatively okay and I could pop to the shops if I wanted to or I could walk to an appointment or something like that so I think it's just I can't predict the future, so I'll just have to take it as it comes and adapt. Well, I'm sure all of our listeners will be crossing their fingers for you as well for your your master's degree. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. David, we've just heard from Gabby there and her difficult journey with asthma. How common is it for patients to experience severe asthma in this country and others? So severe asthma as suffered by Gabby is relatively rare. We think it's less than about 5% of people with asthma. And we know that about, it depends on how one estimates it, but about one in six of the UK population have asthma. So it's a small but very significant population. And as, as you've heard from Gabby, you know, it can be a massive challenge for everyday life. And I mean, I was very impressed, as you were, by her positivity and her approach to her severe asthma. Also, it looks like she has a very good collaboration with her healthcare professionals in terms of working out how best to manage her disease in terms of self-help as well as the medications she's using. David, Gabby agreed that steroids are a frenemy of asthma sufferers. Are they similarly a frenemy of the NHS? Undoubtedly, there's a human cost to the use of steroids on quality of life. But is there a hidden cost to prescribing steroids on the NHS? 
how do we go about quantifying this? Absolutely. And I think that's a really good question. And, you know, and I think even for Gabby there, she was basically describing, I think, a number of the short-term adverse consequences of steroids. I don't know which ones she specifically gets, but you can get the mood changes, you can get the short-term weight gain and the irritability and everything else that goes with that. Also an increased risk of pneumonia in the short term. The more difficult is actually the things that are much more hidden and take many years to develop. So I already mentioned earlier the chances of getting osteoporosis, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, even renal failure. And so in our work, we've actually seen that the real cost and the biggest cost of severe asthma is not the asthma itself at all to the health system. It's actually all of those adverse events from steroids. And we've shown that that far outweighs any asthma costs. So the increased cost of the osteoporosis and fractures in later life, the diabetes costs and all the resulting consequences of diabetes, cataracts, you name it. You know, those are where the real hidden cost lies. And there's a priority for the NHS. I think we really do need to be thinking that, you know, every course of steroids that we provide needs to be thought about as potentially causing onward costs down the line. Saeed, talk to us about alternative solutions. Gabby mentioned biologics, but they're currently very expensive. Yes, so there is biologic therapies available that are prescribed by specialist doctors or your specialist severe asthma consultants in tertiary care. And Saeed, for our listeners who may not know, can you just briefly explain what biologics are? Yeah, sure. So they, depending on what you read, they're sometimes known as monoclonal antibodies or, or MABs, and they're used across the board in, in other areas, particularly rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, but have been around in severe asthma for about five or six years. But essentially, it works on the inflammatory pathway, particular immune responses as well, and on particular types of cells. But they're normally given by an injection or a subcutaneous injection, very similar to if you're a diabetic and you need insulin that's kind of the route of therapy and and depending on which biologic you're on that can range from every four weeks or every eight weeks normally very helpful thank you continue there are a number of biologics available on the market and they are obviously if you're talking about costs they would be more expensive in terms of cost than your oral corticosteroids However, what you do need to bear in mind is you know, we need to think about the adverse events. So, for instance, if these biologics do help, for example, we tend to call them in healthcare exacerbations, but as David quite rightly pointed out, these are more commonly known as asthma attacks. If it reduces the number of asthma attacks, if it reduces the amount of oral corticosteroids they use, therefore the amount of OCS, as I'll use as an acronym for oral corticosteroids, is used less. So therefore you would have less adverse events associated with oral corticosteroids as well. And as David will probably add to it, it also helps in terms of quality of life parameters. So for instance, they're able to do more tasks, they're not carrying around as much weight as a result of steroid therapy as well. So if you're talking about an initial cost, yeah, the answer would be yes, they are more expensive. But if you're thinking about more broader and a more holistic view, that's more benefit for the patient and they can do more in their day-to-day activities. But, you know, as companies, we are providing solutions to the NHS in terms of how patients can access the medications far more easier. For example, being delivered to their home, being trained on how to use it at home without those patients having to come into hospital as well. So from an AstraZeneca point of view, that's what we're trying to do to support patients if they do go on a biologic therapy 
No, those knock-on costs are important. The annual cost of, of treating the side effects associated with steroids are roughly 165 pounds per person. That adds up to over 80 million pounds annually. So we're not talking small numbers. David, in an ideal world, would we be replacing all steroids as a treatment for asthma sufferers? Or will there always be a place for steroids? That's a very good question. And I, in the foreseeable future, we're still going to need to keep steroids in our armamentarium. But obviously, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need that. And, you know, a number of us have been thinking about a future world as well, where at the moment, biologics, as you've mentioned, are relatively expensive, although NICE has very much confirmed that they are cost effective in the way that they're being used within the NHS at this point. And, you know, I think they've been very enlightened in recognising the costs of the adverse consequences of steroids in recommending biologics for people with high use. But I, a number of us have sort of started to think about a future world where, as we start to understand much more about the types of asthma, that we might start to actually use biologics much earlier in the disease. You know, for many patients, having, a, having an injection once every eight weeks or every four weeks, that meant that they actually needed to use their inhalers very little and that that became the mainstay for a breadth of people with asthma might be a phenomenal advance. So that potentially is one future vision. Another future vision is that many people like Gabby, their asthma is actually, part of the reason their asthma is bad now is because they used to have a lot of exacerbations attacks when at a prior point. And that's actually resulted in a degree of damage to the lungs, which is probably to some extent irreversible. And if we were able to target people earlier who have that pattern of disease, particularly using biologic therapy or making making maybe getting the inhaled steroids in earlier for some of them, we may actually be able to switch some of that off and prevent some of those long-term consequences and more severe asthma. So I think we're very excited about looking at earlier interventions with some of our biologics, both in terms of managing the disease better for some of our patients, but also preventing some of the long-term consequences. And that's a future vision. It's not where we are right now, but it, you know, it is what's exciting us as a way to try and get rid of steroids to a large extent out of our armamentarium. David, do we have the luxury of waiting for that world to come about? Even the Department of Health recognizes that there have been problems in the past about oversubscribing steroids. If we're in that situation now, how much longer do you think it's going to take to get to a place where severe asthma patients are given better care? I think that's a really important question. And you've you've highlighted the concern about overprescribing and clearly the NHS is very much focused on that. And in a given individual, as a one-off course in an emergency, you know, it's not overprescribing. But the repeating of that without stepping in and looking at alternative strategies is overprescribing to my mind. So whether that's making sure that the background asthma therapy is correct, whether modifiable lifestyle factors have been addressed, whether that's being about need for referral to a severe asthma specialist, whatever should happen there, that's key in preventing that future overprescribing. So whilst that one-off rescue is absolutely the right thing to do, that needs to be a moment where we step back and avoid future overprescribing. 
And Saeed, just how far off is that future? When will we be in a position where we can realistically offer severe asthma patients alternatives and a better patient experience? Yeah, I guess we could argue that's happening now within the industry. So as I mentioned, um, as AstraZeneca, we're supporting healthcare professionals and patients with that at the moment. So if a physician or a severe asthma nurse deems that this patient is suitable for a biologic, they need that based on the NICE guidelines, as David has mentioned, then there is support mechanisms in place there. So whether that's by delivering these biologics to their homes or by sending a nurse to administer those biologics. And not only that, we want to empower patients as well from the perspective of training those patients on administering those biologics. So I think with COVID, that situation has now accelerated and we as an organization as AstraZeneca are leading on that but I suspect other companies are doing that at the moment and we're looking at ways of how we can expand that further and find more novel ways of supporting patients. Finally David you lead the International Severe Asthma Registry a global collaborative initiative to gather real-life data for patient experience of severe asthma. Are there other countries that are treating asthma better than the UK? I actually think the UK, first of all, does very well. And I think we don't want to, it's very easy to always get into this game, the UK is doing worse than other people. And we often see those newspaper headlines, don't we? I have to say that I think managing severe asthma is a challenge, a global challenge. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about the collaboration. We actually have 32 countries collaborating and sharing their data for the good of understanding severe asthma better, because within each individual country, there may not be enough patients. So combining that data gives us some really valuable insights. I'm very lucky and honoured to be coordinating that group. I think the UK has had some of the best data collection in severe asthma. The UK Severe Asthma Registry is one of the oldest and is a big collaborator to our Severe Asthma Registry. I think the one thing that I would say, and this is not necessarily a criticism, but there is quite big variation in the access to biologics around the world. So what we've seen is that different countries have reviewed exactly the same evidence and have given different licenses for the use of biologics with different background criteria for the patients, which is very, very confusing and rather difficult for clinicians. Secondly, the access in terms of the background criteria and the costing, etc., for the biologic access can be quite different around the world. Some countries, patients have to pay one third of the cost themselves, such as Japan. So that access varies dramatically. And I I do think as someone sort of coordinating that, and we're just about to publish the results of that sort of work, looking at that variation, I do think that we need to work globally to reduce that variation and improve access. And you know, everyone's looking at the same data and coming up with different conclusions, which is rather sad. And I think we it would be very nice to see more international collaboration on these sort of things and internationally agreed standards, because we do see that variability. Saeed, last word to you. Is there any other country you think the UK should be looking to? I don't necessarily think there's a country we should be looking to, but it's interesting how David mentioned we all have different takes of a situation. 
I think from my point of view, not necessarily a country, but we can look at different disease areas of how they've evolved over time. So if you look at rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, where oral corticosteroids were a mainstay of therapy for a considerable length of time, but they've kind of evolved now in bringing biologic therapy in at a much earlier stage and using oral corticosteroids when deemed necessary. So maybe not necessarily a country, but I think we can definitely look at other disease areas. David, Saeed, thanks very much for joining me. 